Welcome to Looking California and Feeling Minnesota. My name is Michael McCaffrey. I'm a writer out here in Southern California, and I am with Barry Anderson from lovely uh, Minnesota. I'm a director, and uh, today we get to talk about a, uh, I think, one of your favorite movies of the year. Uh, it's a very polarizing movie, and it's up uh, for, I think, it's the most, most nominated movie of the year, uh, The Joker. Actually, Barry, it's just called Joker, so there's no the in front of it. Let's get it right, buddy. Okay. All right, should we start over? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think to open this, I think it would be great if we sang a duet of Send in the Clowns. Um, I'll let you start. Uh, so, Nope, you clearly don't know me very well. <laughs> that, that will alienate everybody out there. Yes, we are here to talk about Joker. Uh, Joker, which stars Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck, who is a struggling uh, street clown uh, who is... It has a difficult life and eventually is turned into uh, Batman's nemesis, the Joker. Uh, the film is directed and written by Todd Phillips. It's also uh, written by Scott Silver. And the cast includes Robert De Niro, Zazie Beetz, and Francis Conroy. Cinematographer, Lawrence Schur, who we will talk about quite a bit today. I have a funny feeling. And the film has been... Uh, quite polarizing it is nominated for 11 academy awards the most of any film this year nominated for best picture director best actor uh best i think adapted screenplay um best cinematography it has made it was made for about 60 million dollars and it has made over one billion dollars uh at the box office so barry it's a good investment is what you're saying yes Buy, we should have bought Joker stock early. Well, um, everybody said that DC couldn't figure out how to beat Marvel. Well, uh, <laughs> they yeah. almost did in one movie. So <laughs> Yeah, uh, they, they did it. And it's the highest earning R-rated film ever made. And uh, it is the most financially uh, successful comic book movie ever made. It hasn't made as much as the, some of the Marvel movies, but uh, its budget was, was much smaller. So, Barry, what did you think of Joker? Um, from a pure entertainment value, it's, it's in a gray area for me. You know, it's right. When I think entertainment value, I try to think about like, who would I recommend it to? You know, not every movie that has entertainment value is universal. This movie is not universal. Um, but this movie tends in my mind to be much more toward the cinema cinephile. Like if I know that you like, you know, movies and you're a little bit, you know, okay with, different movies and how the stories are told are a little bit different. This movie is absolutely for you. I'm always a little bit not sure what to tell normal people. <laughs> One of those things where I'm kind of like, well, and I try to, I haven't, I haven't perfected my, my, my elevator pitch other than there's a lot of things to like, but it's not the sort of movie where, you know, if it's nine o'clock at night, you're going to pop it in and you're just kind of had a long day, maybe not the best movie for you to choose. But as a cinema fan, um, for everything that's good and everything that's not as good about the movie, it's absolutely worth your time. And what I love about it is it's the sort of movie that the more thought you put into it, the more things you can kind of pull out. So I'm I'm intrigued by the movie, but I don't know kind of where it stands, you know, kind of on that the overall list. I don't know if in four or five years you kind of you're like, well, yeah, that, that movie's gone. Or if it'll be like a movie like The Dark Knight or something like that that seems to have legs kind of in perpetuity. 
And I'm curious to see what you think about that. Yeah, I think that's an excellent observation. The film, I've seen it uh, three times and I, I loved it more and more each time I saw it. And the first time I saw it, I was blown away. Uh, I was absolutely blown away by the movie. I thought it was fantastic. And, you know, I saw it um, the opening weekend, I think. Yeah, it's opening. And I'm going to give the audience members a little context. Since you hate babies and puppies, um, for you to be blown away by something, it probably means it's different than, I mean, who else hates cat videos than you on the internet? So it's one of those things where just, if people are graphing, is Mike normal or not? No. You're you're a little you're a little bit you're a little bit off the the normal path, which is part of why I connected with the film. I much like Arthur Fleck, um, all I have are negative thoughts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I saw it uh, opening weekend, and it's funny I'd written about it prior to seeing it because there was all this turmoil around the movie, and people were horrified and. Um, you know, the film premiered at the uh, Venice Film Festival in uh, August, and it won the Golden Lion, which is the best picture there. It's a very prestigious award. And I think the last two Golden Lion winners, last two American films to win Golden Lion won best picture of the Academy Award. Um, The Shape of Water was one, and I can't remember the other. But, so there was a lot of notice about this movie a lot of attention and yet the critical the american critical uh opinion of the film was really negative and not just about it being a terrible movie but about it being quote-unquote dangerous Uh, yeah stephanie zacharick of time said that this joker is the patron saint of incels and that you know, this is gonna, uh, you know, that these angry white men are gonna, you know, be inspired by this movie to do violence, you know, all this stuff. Um, And that sort of, that was the first big review to mention that sort of thing. And then, you know, David Edelstein, Anthony Lane, Ty Burr, all these guys came out and just repeated that idea of like, this movie is dangerous. Ty Burr wrote one of the more, of the Boston Globe wrote one of the more, inane pieces about Joker, basically saying like, yeah, you know, there in history, there have been hysterias around movies. Uh, and he talked about Joe Klein, who was a writer for New York Magazine, when um, uh, Do the Right Thing came out, Spike Lee's movie came out in 1989, I think. And Joe Klein had written this very controversial piece about it saying, this is gonna inspire black people to be violent uh, against white people and to hate the police and all these things. And, you know, Klein was excoriated and history has not treated him very kindly for those uh, remarks. And Ty Burr acknowledged all those things. And then he said, um, yeah, I know I may be the Joe Klein of today, but dot, 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 <laughs> this movie is dangerous and it celebrates white male violence and all these things and they, sh- they shouldn't put it out. So I went into the movie scared to death on opening weekend that an angry white male incel was gonna shoot up the theater I went into. And then I realized, well, 
I don't have a gun, so how am I going to shoot people uh, as the angry <laughs> white male incel? So no, I love the movie, and I I agree with you in terms of um, perfect example. My my mother and my sister both um, went and saw Parasite on my recommendation, and Parasite's a weird movie. It's dark yeah. and yeah. it's bizarre, and and my mother and my sister are are very sort of you know, middle of the road, straightforward um, moviegoers. And they both loved the movie. They both just loved it. And yeah. I was like, so happy. I'm like, oh, that's great that like they could appreciate that film. It's this foreign film and you know, the subtitles, the whole thing, and it's bizarre. But they really liked it. When I spoke to both of them about Joker, I, I said, yeah, no, you wouldn't like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just you really have to gird your loins to see the film because it, it is a jarring experience um, for many reasons. It's, it's unsettling. And that's part of the power of the film. That's what makes it so great. But it is in terms of like normal people seeing it. And of course, it's done very well. So people have... It, it's done very well because I think the genius of the movie is you have, I mean... I would maybe make the argument that the Joker is more popular than Batman. Like, mm. if, there's a there's a weird there's a weird attraction when it comes to so you have this almost Superman level kind of superstar, but they've never you don't know anything about the Joker. Like, he just exists, and you see the different portrayals from you know all the different people who have you know put on put on his particular facade. But this was a movie that you're like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what it is about the Joker. So it's kind of like nobody knows what's going to happen. So you have a very sellable premise, but then this fertile landscape of like, you can't do whatever the heck you want. Because clearly he's not a sound mind sort of gentleman. He's not like he's a rational, you know, <laughs> hey, this is a guy that's going to go out and help humanity. No, he's going to set the world on fire. So when you get stuff like that, I think if a filmmaker, it'd be fun to be like, okay, well, what, what do we, what do we want to do? And I definitely think that's the case for this movie that they decided to, to take something that could be sold with the masses and take a risk and then just sit back and be like, well, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a high risk, high reward sort of game. And I think it played out really well. And I'm sure a lot of those ticket sales came from people hearing about it's doing really well. It's breaking all these records and they kind of go in but then I think some people, I think there's a certain segment of the movie going public that, you know, even if they're not entertained by a movie, they can be curious as to why it's having kind of the cultural effect. And I think that's brought, that drove a lot of kind of what I'd consider the middle sales. Yeah. You know, it's not the comic book movie. It's not the cinephile. It's kind of this, the more, you know, transient kind of middle of the road, but thinking uh, uh, people. And I think it's I think it's hit on that, and I and I, and it's a movie that sticks with you, whether you like it or not. Or, you know, it's not a movie you walk out and go like, eh, I don't really remember much. Yeah. There's things you remember, there's things you're bothered by, there's things you hate, there's things you like. So it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a it's a movie that doesn't let you forget it, which I think is is that in and of itself is a success. Yeah, I agree. It it I think the controversy around it ended up being the greatest promotion the film could have had is that it, you know, turned people off. Uh, you know, everybody gets their panties in a bunch and then it's like, people are like, Oh, okay. Well, that means I should go see the movie, yeah. <laughs> you know? 
so I thought that was very successful. The film, when it came out, there were all these fears. I mean, like there were police departments, uh, you yeah. know, saying you couldn't wear costumes to the theater. The, I think the Pentagon put out a, a release saying like, you know, a warning to any military members not to go to opening weekend and all these things because it's dangerous and, you know, right. all that stuff. But think, I think, just I th- think about I th- the, the marketing though. Right. Before, I mean, like how, how were they able to get it? I mean, I'll, I'll call it an almost a hysteria prior to anybody seeing, like there's no, it's yeah. literally somehow just struck a chord and it was everywhere. This is a movie that was literally everywhere. And everywhere. $60 million. That doesn't give you a budget to like be omnipresent. This isn't star Wars. This isn't yeah. you know, some sort of, I mean, it was a big movie, but it wasn't that big. And it, it, it struck a chord that I think is kind of the core of what makes this movie fascinating. It's where is it coming from? What is it, what is it tapping into? Yeah. And you know, I had written about this as well, like on Twitter and stuff like that, like, like the critics who were saying, Oh, this is dangerous. They had seen it, but people on Twitter hadn't even seen it yet. And were just like, Oh, this movie's awful. This is just more excuses for white guys to be entitled to violence and all this stuff. And it just, it was out of control, but it is exactly what this movie needed to build a hysteria around it that got people into the theaters. And it just took off, man. I mean, it, it was, it, I think without question, it's the movie, as you were saying, you know, in, in five years, will people think about this movie? I think this is the only movie people will talk about from this year. And this is a great year for movies. Um, I mean, you can, you can just see it with the Academy Awards. I don't think it's going to win Academy Awards because for a variety of reasons, but nobody's going to talk about 1917 five years from no, now or 10 absolutely. years from now. Um, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I really loved, that movie came out six months ago. People aren't talking about it. Yeah. I mean, that was the favorite to win the Academy Award and it's like disappeared. Um, uh, you know, the, the Scorsese film, The Irishman, same thing. Joker, I think, five, 10, 15 years from now is the movie people are going to be talking about because of what it means for comic book films, what it means for uh, big budget studio films, that what Phillips tried to do, and he's talked openly about this with Joaquin Phoenix, he said, hey, let's, let's use IP, intellectual property, to sneak a real movie out into the world. And that's exactly what he did. And the film, for people who don't know, it's, it's sort of a loose take. Uh, it's inspired by, I guess you should say, uh, Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. Two very uh, great, great films and very, very dark films. And this movie just drips with the essence of those movies. And that's what makes it brilliant. And Phillips to be able to do that, to have this sort of Easter egg, you know, <laughs> in, in popular culture put out there, it, it's just really a masterstroke from a guy that neither one of us would say prior to this, oh yeah, he's, he's incredible director, you know. <laughs> I mean, he did like the three Hangover movies, he did uh, Old School and stuff like that. He's just a guy who's making a living, being funny, and then he pulls this thing out of his ass and it's just, it, it's incredible, it's an incredible, cinematic achievement and i think 
upon multiple viewings, it becomes richer and richer each time you see it. And I was, I thought it was extraordinarily rich the first time I saw it. So before we dig, dive deeper into the movie, I'm just going to list off four or five movies because you triggered something in my brain. The Blair Witch Project, Passion of the Christ, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You know, uh, I thought there was one other one. But if you take movies like that, those are the movies that basically somehow grabbed, you know, the public and strangled them and didn't let go. And now you have years. I feel like something like the Blair Witch Project, which was a terrible movie. That movie still resonates. It's like it's like common knowledge. Like when you talk about like shaky camera, like the Blair Witch. I mean, you could talk to your grandma and she'll know what you're talking about. Right. I feel like the Joker is one of those movies that somehow, regardless of what the quality of the movie is, it somehow is bigger than what it is. And some of those movies, like my big fat Greek wedding, I think was like number one at the box office for like, was it like 11 weeks in a row? Like it was like really weird. It just kept going and making money and printing money. And I saw the movie and I hated it. And I'm like, why are people <laughs> liking this movie? But it just, like you had, at some point you just had to go see it because you're like, how is this movie still around? So some of those movies over time, you know, fade, some stay, some become kind of, you know, synonymous with something. And I think with Joker, I think it was like a cry for movies that you could sell to a broad audience that had kind of an it factor or something more cinematic. And I think, I think that's, it's almost like what people are crying for. It's like, I don't want sugar anymore. You know, yeah. make it look like sugar, but give me some medicine in the, in the center. And I don't know if the Joker's good enough to hold up to being like one of the greatest of all time, but I definitely think it proved that audiences don't just want dumb, mindless, only entertainment. They do want, the, the fact over the last 10, 15, 20 years that the adult film that causes people to think and wrestle with topics and try to like, you know, kind of figure out where, where we are in the world and what's the problems and how do we fix them since we've done away with those. Um, I think this movie tapped back in saying like, nope, you've got to figure out a way to, you know, get it funded and get it out there. But the, the, the demand by the audience is as great as it's ever been. But I think it's great from a filmmaking standpoint. I agree. It's funny you mentioned Passion of the Christ. I had not thought of that, but that's the only film I can think of that had a similar uh, storm swirling around it. Yeah. Uh, upon release and pre-release. Um, and with that movie, it was about, you know, anti-Semitism and, and even the violence and all this stuff. But Mel Gibson, to his credit and, and his genius, uh, used that to great effect to sell the movie. He went over people's heads and just said, Hey, I'm selling this. He would he would uh, have screenings with church groups across the country. He'd do direct mailings to church church groups and things like that. Market straight to them, and he personally made half a billion dollars off that movie because he financed it, it, it himself, and it made I think uh, well, nearly seven hundred. Yeah, domestically it was like seven hundred million, which is crazy. yeah, which is crazy. You know, and this is this is a movie. Uh, not just with subtitles, but in Aramaic, for God's yeah. sakes. I mean, like, it's, it's a dead language for all of us. I was going to say, there, there, is, there is no <laughs> sector of the world you can sell it to them. Like, oh, good, at least they're talking about right. it. Right, yeah, we don't need subtitles for this. So that's what it reminds me of, the, the sort of media hysteria for Joker was comparable to that, because I just remember 
And, you know, Mel Gibson had to go on all the talk shows and do all these things. And he ended up cutting one line, you know, which is bizarre. But that's what it felt like with Joker, that, like, Todd Phillips was, you know, put on the chopping block and people were coming after him. And he handled it, I, I suppose, the best he could. But that was the the atmosphere in which this, this film came out. Um, and I agree with you. I think it's just, I know from my experience, this movie literally is the movie, the comic book movie I've been dreaming of either making or seeing for the entirety of my life. You know, like I remember the Tim Burton Batmans, which I didn't like. I wanted to see a real movie. And I have a friend of mine who, whose dad is a, a very uh, artistically uh, in touch guy. And he talked about the, uh, the dark Knight movies. He said, you know, you know, what's great about those movies is that that's what it would be like in real life. If there was a real Batman, like that's a real world where like real consequences happen. And if there was some rich bill, if you know, if Mike Bloomberg were fighting crime you know, out <laughs> on the street, this is what it would be like. And that's what I, I, and I agree with him on that. And I, and I think that's what makes Joker so great is that that's, that's a real world. Like that's the New York I, I know in that movie, you know, from the, the, it, it's a real place. And, and the consequences in the film are real, which is what makes it so compelling and captivating um, along with a bunch of other reasons, which we can get into about, how it's made and the performances and all these things. Uh, but I, I just thought it was really a great film. It's not perfect, but it's, it's, it's an astounding achievement um, for Todd Phillips, who I never would have predicted could be capable of such a thing. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how they made the movie. Cause I think, I think it is one of the most visually arresting, stunning films of the last five, 10 years in Whatever, as I've as I've aged and and done more work and made more movies, the ability to create a frame that you can take and show someone and have a reaction or a memory—I mean, that is an, an extremely hard thing to do. And there were countless of them throughout the movie. I mean, there were so many that you're just like, oh my god, this is like an artist is literally painting, and the world was very real. But at the same time, it was like a hyper-realistic. It was, yeah. I mean, it, it's an experience. Like, I almost wonder if you just shut off all the music, all the words and everything, just watched it. I still think you'd be compelled just by what you were seeing with that take out every other sense. And I think that, I can't think of many movies that I would, I would think that about. You know, when people talk about something like 1917, I'm like, shut off the music and the sound. I, I'll go to sleep. I, don't, I have no interest in watching the movie anymore. Whereas the Joker, you know, one of my best friends who's since passed, he would always, he always said that when he would make an edit and he wasn't sure if he was there yet, he'd shut off all the music and see, does the edit disappear? Because if the edit disappears when there's no, nothing, then it really disappears when you bring it all back. And sometimes you can't fix an edit and that's why you have music and you have other stuff to kind of hide it. But if you can, if you can watch it and it all flows and it works and you're, you know, captured, cause I mean, that's really what movies were. They were, they were silent films because they told the story visually. And I think from that standpoint, this movie, I think that's a, that's it, it maybe its strongest feature. Yeah, I agree. And as much as it's a shock about Todd Phillips making a movie, this 
masterfully. I mean, it, it is just a high-end film, uh, exquisitely made. Cinematographer Lawrence Schur, there's nothing in his history to, to indicate that he was capable of something like this. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, if, if this were uh, baseball or something, you'd be like, oh, yeah, well, Phillips and Schur must be on, you know, steroids or something. Because they, they went from hitting like, you know, <laughs> being 250 hitters with like 10 home runs to being like 330 hitters with 45 home runs with this thing. And I agree, just visually the film, it has a gritty look to it, which is accentuated by the production design. And, and it's so beautifully photographed. And there's, uh, we've talked about this before, but I think uh, American Cinematographer has a, a little video with Sure talking about how he shot it, his approach and all these things, which I highly recommend people go uh, look for and watch because it's very enlightening. And what's so beautiful about how they shoot this, and Phoenix has talked about this too, is that there are, there are parts where it's a very conventional shoot. So Sure talks about this when after Arthur Fleck makes uh, his first kill, he runs down this, this uh, street underneath an overpass. And the way it's lit, they have, they have uh, his shadow gets much bigger as he goes down. And it's, it's a beautiful uh, standard sort of conventional shot, but very effectively done. And the camera's just holding there still. And Phoenix is the motion running through it in the, in the frame. But then it cuts to, he goes into a bathroom. He hides into a bathroom. Um, and he does this sort of uh, dance, this shamanic possessed dance, like he's a, uh, you know, a puppet on a string, like being pulled by different forces. And that was improvised, first of all, and which is very common with Joaquin Phoenix. He doesn't like to rehearse and he likes to sort of go where the scene takes him. But it's improv improvised with... Uh, a handheld camera, Steadicam. And he and the camera operator just worked together in that scene quite beautifully. And they understood that, you know, sure, and the camera operator, which I think sure may have actually been operating the camera, to be able to do that spontaneously and get this really unnerving scene and to capture it and to finish it with. Phoenix, his arms outstretched in a mirror. So he looks like a Christ, but because it's in a mirror, it's reversed. So he's like, as the film, the archetype of the film is, he's this antichrist being born. It's really stunning to be able to go from a conventional shot to this rather unconventional fly by the seat of your pants approach back to back and have it be so visually Arresting is what you said, and that is totally true. It's just, it's stunning to look at. And added to that, and we can keep going, sure, but added to that is the score, which I think is beautiful and may very well win, and hopefully it does win the Oscar. Uh, it's won a bunch of other awards, but the score is just this bleak, um, desolate cello a lot of the time. <laughs> and, and it so represents the film and the character and it's the character's arc. And that's what I just loved about the movie is everything feeds, everything is purposeful and feeds the ultimate story. And that's why I think it resonates with people is that it, it, it is so 
archetypally um, potent and everything feeds that so that the viewer gets pulled into it and has that experience of multiple levels of you know entertainment artistically psychologically emotionally uh all that sort of stuff so go ahead so i'm gonna jump away from joker just to point this out so in terms of how they did the movie and how fluid it was and you're kind of making it up on the fly both improvised by joaquin and the camera ops a friend of mine eric fletcher he was the uh the camera op, steady cam op on Dexter, and fans of Dexter, all the all the kill scenes that they did in the when they uh, had all the plastic up, they they figured out the first time they basically cleared the room and it was just the main actor and him, and they had to figure it out and that became kind of a signature of the show, and he he's he said on panels with me and whatnot that that was the highlight of his career because it was there was like. There was like it was like a dance partner. It was like an intimacy that you have to figure out. Like you know, you don't know where anything's going to happen. You don't know. Nobody knows what's going to happen, but yet you have to both be in this creative rhythm that can only happen. It can't be planned. You can't talk about it. You can't sit there and talk. And well, you go to the left. I'm going to go to the right. There's just you have to kind of feed off that energy. So I mean, Dexter ran for how many years? It clearly works there. Um, one of my favorite working uh, directors, Christopher Nolan, and one of my favorite movies of his, uh, The Prestige. Uh, some of the scenes, how they would light, is they would make sure that it was almost like a sitcom, but the feature still had to look cinematic. But the actors would show up, and they would figure out how to block and make it work. And it was that same sort of thing. There was a certain spontaneity that I know that you want to prep when you make movies. You want to make sure that you're not burning, you know, <laughs> money burns very quick when you got, you know, 100 people standing around waiting to be told what to do. But if you set up the right environment, I mean, my, my favorite director of all time, Frank Capra, used to talk about, he'd have these fights. Uh, one of his favorite actresses was uh, Jean Arthur. And she would throw up every time she had to come out. She hated rehearsing. And if you did more than two takes with her, it was all gone. But some of the other actors, like I don't remember if it was uh, uh, Clark Gable, one of them that wanted to, you know, they always wanted to rehearse. So he'd have, you know, the understudy come in, but then the other actor would be mad, and you know, he would he would have to figure out this this play. And the essence of storytelling usually comes down to you can plan so far, but where the magic really happens is when you get outside of that comfortable zone. And I think most movies now either a the directors aren't good enough be in that danger zone and or the actors aren't good enough to you know get let themselves be uncomfortable or the budgets are so tight that they just don't have that little bit extra time to do something and i think because they had the backing of the studio but it was such a low risk i think that they were able to do things that other people can't and i think it shows that if they understand what could be done under certain parameters more movies like the joker could come out Everyone's too afraid because it's not a, a, a bean counter can't predict because it is like lightning in a bottle. And, yeah. I, and that's the thing that I, I want people to support the movie because I think that is where the greatest, you know, I think it's the, um, the Sistine Chapel, you know, back when they were painting it, they scrapped it and repainted. I mean, can you imagine me halfway through painting the Sistine Chapel? Like, <laughs> yeah, let's just, let's just cover that up and let's, let's go again. Uh, you know, but, but it, it but, at some point that makes sense. I mean, there's been countless movies where they go back and reshoot something because it's not right. And I just love the idea that the Joker, the actor 
wanted to prep in his head and come in and be fresh. You know, the cinematographer, you know, and the camera operators were ready for that. And the, the director is like, no, I want to encourage this environment and let's see what happens. And then in the edit room, they didn't trim it down to within an inch of its life. A lot of times, you know, if there's an extra beat that wouldn't normally be there, they'd want to edit around that. And it would be kind of weird in this, they kind of let it be. And for the movie, a lot of it was uncomfortable, but they let, they let you live and they let you experience and they let you have pain and let you have kind of in, 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 into the psyche and into this character in a way that I don't think would have worked if you would have shot it a different way. And I, that to me is the trifecta, but it was the, it was the confluence of a capable director with a, you know, a, a wonderful cinematographer and a wonderful actor that all just got to play. And this is what they came up with. And I'm like, amen. <laughs> yeah. We have more of that, please. I want more of that. Yeah. You know, Joaquin Phoenix was on uh, 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago, um, which was shocking in and of itself. But uh, he was talking about his approach and he doesn't like to rehearse. And his explanation makes complete and total sense because he said, yeah, I don't like to rehearse because, you know, you end up rehearsing and you make these discoveries, but they're interesting when you make the discoveries, but then you try and recreate that when you get in the scene when they're shooting. And so his whole idea is, well, why don't we just make the discoveries while we're shooting? Because um, that will be interesting, which is so true. And like me working with clients as, as an acting coach um, and teacher and stuff like that, I, I often refer to the joke, um, you know, oh, I went to a, a boxing, uh, went to a fight the other night and a hockey game broke out. Um, and so when I work with actors, a lot of times they'll be doing a scene and working on it and all these things. And then, um, something unexpected will happen that nobody planned and the scene sort of goes somewhere. And I always say, Hey, you know, how about that? <laughs> Everybody was acting and then the scene broke out you know, like, <laughs> because there is that sense of danger that all of a sudden it's life. It's that spark of life. And when I work with clients in terms of auditions, I always say, you know, they're like, oh, did I get this line right or that line right? And I always say, listen, the people you're auditioning for have heard these lines all day for the last week. And all they're looking for is not for you to get the lines right, but for you to come into the scene and be alive. Yeah. Well, to as, not as a director sitting on the other side of that table, I can't tell you how many times you just, it's like everybody tries to do the same thing over and over and over again. You're like, well, I don't, that's definitely not what I want. I want someone to do something. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't think about that. Because as a director, I don't want to tell the actor every single choice they need to make. I want an actor that's bringing creative things to me and challenging like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And that's where the collaboration comes in. But I, I mean, absolutely, without question, as a director, everything I'm looking for when I'm shooting a scene is I want that moment where reality pokes its head in in a scene. And as soon as that happens, I'm always the script supervisor. I'm like, that's going to make the edit. Because it's, it's yeah. something, there's like a spark that's not there. And go back to my favorite director, Frank Capra. He knew that actors had a hard time. If you put so many things in their head in a scene, it's very hard for them to ever be real. And so he was shooting a scene, uh, I think it was Pocket Full of Miracles. But uh, uh, who's the guy that ended up playing Columbo? Uh, Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Well, anyway, uh, he, it was one of his early movies, but he was supposed to put on a jacket, but he was supposed to struggle putting on the jacket and then it was supposed to be like this comedic scene. And he kept doing it 
and it just didn't work. And so they took a break and Frank Happer told the, the wardrobe, they're like, sew one of the arms shut midway through. So he, he goes to the next suit, starts putting on, and then he realizes he doesn't have to act. He can't get his arm in. And he said the whole scene just came to life for him because yeah. he, it took away one of those thoughts and he just, it was that happy discovery. And I'm like, sometimes that's what you're trying to engineer is so that in the moment, the actor isn't trying to make something happen. Something happens, the actor gets to react to that. I mean, this movie's chalk full of scenes where that happened and it shows up on the big screen and that's that's the magic that's why i think you know you said it, this movie will be talked about for years to come uh brief hollywood story that i'll tell you um a friend of mine whose name is bud weiser that's his <laughs> actual name um who passed away uh i think two years ago lovely guy just a just one of the nicest guys in the world. And he was very successful uh, television writer and documentarian out here forever. He, he died, I think he was in his mid eighties. And uh, he had been um, a writer on, with Norman Lear. He'd worked with Norman Lear quite a bit and he worked on One Day at a Time. And he told us this story, um, my wife and I, about uh, actors and you know dealing with actors can sometimes be difficult, but he talked about being in an audition and having to sit there through the whole thing and you're just like oh yeah yeah and there was one small role for i think it was like a a, a bailiff a court or something who had to their only line was to say a name and it was romano and that was the main character's last name is romano so the guy comes out and says romano romano okay and that's it and so you have to audition for this right this is life yeah. as a as an actor <laughs> and so he sees you know like three days worth of romano romano and he's you know he's just his eyes are glazing over and then somebody comes in some guy and they say okay go ahead you know action and he goes romano romano <laughs> <laughs> and that guy got the job <laughs> And it's in the show. Like, you can go watch it. It's funny. <laughs> but like he said, like, that's the thing. Like, people think that you have to do it perfectly. And you don't. And I've always said this to my clients. You don't have to be perfect in an audition or even on set. You just have to be alive. Be in that moment. Be connected with what you're doing. And I love it when you don't plan stuff, when you're just, like, doing it. Of course, nobody lets you be that no, way. No, I, that, yeah, that yeah. doesn't happen. <laughs> I remember I did uh, I did a Law and Order, and um, the director, I you know we shot um, this scene, we did the wide, and then after you know then we're getting for do it again, and he says, uh, um, yeah, Michael, just uh, just do it just like in the audition. <laughs> I was like, oh, son of a bitch. Because yeah, then you got to be like, oh, what did I do in the audition? I don't even remember. Um, but Joaquin Phoenix doesn't have this problem, right? And especially in Joker, he doesn't have this problem. Because he goes into those scenes and, of course, playing this character feeds that sense of spontaneity. He's just alive on camera and we're all just witnessing his deterioration. And it is glorious to behold. From an acting standpoint, I, I mean, I've told clients in terms of who to look at as an actor. Joaquin Phoenix is evolving the art of acting like no one we've seen since Marlon Brando. And I mean, Brando was like, you know, uh, 
the first atomic bomb can compare to like, you know, a hand grenade. I mean, that changed acting. We, we feel the reverberations of Brando in the mid fifties today in performances and Phoenix is taking that to the next level. And the film I always point people to is uh, the master, which is not a successful film. It's, it's a great movie, but it didn't do very well. His performance in that is, I mean, it, it is otherworldly. It is so good. And the thing about him is that he's so spontaneous and combustible and it, you just feel it. It's just a visceral sensation from him. And yet he is so specific and detailed and precise in everything he does that the camera can capture it all. He never gets lost. And in that movie, in The Master, he's working opposite Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's the other actor I always point my clients to. I'm just like, you've got to watch this guy. Like in Boogie Nights, he's so good. Like, watch what he does with his hands and things. And Joaquin Phoenix is the same exact way. You cannot take your eyes off of him in anything he does. And in Joker, it is apex mountain for this guy. I mean, he is on top of Everest and he's taken a rocket from there. So who knows like what he's up to, but he is so good in this and so free and chaotic and yet contained and combustible and explosive and dynamic and yet magnetic. He, you end up not sympathizing with him because sympathy means a detachment. You end up empathizing with him which is the real, real trick of being a great actor is that you don't get people to, oh, I feel sorry for that guy. You feel like, oh shit, that's how I would feel in that situation. I feel what he's feeling. He's feeling what I would feel in that situation. And that's what makes this performance. He should, and hopefully will win the Oscar. It, it, it's, it's a game changer for actors. And everybody's going to want to do something like this now. And you're going to see a lot of poor imitations of it um but just if you get a chance to watch joker again or people out there watch it for the first time just behold how precise this performance is and yet it maintains all of this life and spontaneity and and it's it's a glorious thing to behold just glorious So go, should ahead, we, should we, go ahead, Barry. Go ahead. Should we talk spoilers? <laughs> so, if, if, at this point, I'm going to have to talk about a couple. I want to ask you what your favorite scene of the movie was. Oh, my favorite scene. Oh boy, um, my favorite scene of the movie, and there are many, for a variety of reasons. My favorite one is the scene. There are two. There's actually more, but I'll just give you two. <laughs> uh, yeah. It begins and it ends. Everything <laughs> in between. I love it. I love it. <laughs> The scene where, yeah, spoiler alert, Arthur Fleck, who is becoming more and more the Joker, um, a co-worker of his, a fellow clown, who's kind of a nefarious guy, shows up at his house with um, a dwarf who also works at the clown company that Arthur has been fired from. And they have a discussion and Arthur ends up killing his co-clown friend uh, pretty brutally in his apartment and there's blood everywhere. And you know, Arthur's in his Joker sort of haze and glory. And yet the dwarf is just standing there scared to death. 
And the guy, I don't know the actor's name who plays the dwarf. I should look it up. He's very good. He's very good. I agree. He's very, very good. And not just in the scene. He's, he's very good in this movie. And then the dwarf has to leave the apartment. And he, he, he thinks he's going to get killed. And Arthur says, no, no, you can go. It's fine. And then he goes to leave and he can't reach the lock because it's too high in the door. And there's a sense, and you could feel it in the theater. Oh, I felt it myself where everybody's heart sinks because the dwarf is going to get killed. (laughs) And not only is the dwarf going to get killed, Arthur is going to kill him. And we don't want either of those things to happen because we're still rooting for Arthur and the guy he killed in some ways deserved it. But the dwarf doesn't. And the movie hangs on a thread at that scene. And what Arthur ends up doing is letting the dwarf out. He unlocks the door for him. And so that saves Arthur. It saves the audience. There's this breath of relief. And it is so tense, that scene. I love it. <laughs> and, and Phoenix is great. In it, and it's beautifully shot. Absolutely beautifully shot. And all of the performances in it, I'm going to look the, the actor up because um, I feel bad not saying his name. Um, I, I, well, they don't have it here. Thanks for nothing, guys. <laughs> thanks, thanks for nothing, Wikipedia. What are you doing to me? Um, oh, here we go. No. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I just loved... Um, I just loved the, uh, that scene. And the second scene I loved is shortly after that, actually, where Arthur goes to his neighbor, who is played by Zazie Beetz, um, who is, he thinks it's his girlfriend, but she isn't really. And he breaks into her apartment and he's just sitting there and she comes out of the bedroom. She's just wearing a t-shirt and she sees him and is startled and frightened that he's there. And he is just saying, you know, I'm having a bad day. And she says, you know, can I call somebody? Can I call your mother? And the scene is very, very uh, unclear as to what happens. And there's been a lot of debate about, oh, does Arthur kill her? And all these things. What's interesting about how they shoot it is that the last time you see Zazie Beetz's character is that she's just wearing this T-shirt and there's something sort of alluring and provocative about her. And the idea jumps into your head because Arthur is, is turning and this is depraved Joker is, is he going to rape and kill her? And she says, my daughter's here. And then your heart sinks again. And then the scene cuts and you're left thinking, what just happened? <laughs> and of course you can project anything you want into it. A lot of people say like, Oh, he killed her that the movie's misogynistic and all these things. And other people are just like, no, he just left, right? And so I just think that's a brilliant scene. And it's very, again, very tense, very well shot. I love the framing. Sure's framing in this, in both of these scenes I'm talking about, it's just glorious. It's so, so beautifully framed. And it does the storytelling just with the picture of just Zazie Beat standing there just in a t-shirt she's so vulnerable and it's through her uh, she's an excellent actress by the way just through her presence and through her portrayal of that and how it's photographed 
does all the work for you. And it's very, very unnerving. Both of those scenes are unnerving. So those are my two favorites. What's your favorite, Barry? Uh, well, you stole my favorite. Because, I mean, I, when, when I talk to people, when I break down movie scenes, that scene in his apartment with his co-clown and the dwarf, that is, that is amongst the best crafted, both shot selection, blocking, you know, intentionality, like the emotional arc of what the audience goes through in that scene. That is like, I mean, that's, that is it. I mean, that is the movie in a nutshell because it, again, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's what I love about it is like you assume and then it's like, oh, maybe not. Then you, you, you get another, oh, okay, no, oh, wait, now there's a pivot. Oh, God. And it's like, it's, I mean, what is, what is it, two minutes? Three minutes tops? Yeah. And you're all over the place. You're a hot mess as the audience member in this three minutes. And I think what people are going to notice, I think this is one of the first movies that we've done that I think we've gone into our cinephile hats. I think we're both like kids in candy stores right now. Because <laughs> yeah. I mean, people listening are like, I don't know what the heck they're talking about. This is all over the map. Other movies, other things, this, how people are reacting. But this is, this is what is in the movie. There is, there is so much in how it's executed and how it's put together. And really what that opens up is what, what does the audience react? And what you said there about that scene where they cut and you don't know what happens. One of the greatest things that's been lost in modern cinema is the art of setting up something, but then not resolving it and letting people bring their experience, bring their worldview, bring their politics, bring their you know, religious views into something that creates discussion that like allows people from different areas or different walks of life to come together, look at, at one particular point and then have different ways they can go with it. And I think that that is the ability of a movie like this to transcend because each generation can watch it and have, you know, the same, same bits and pieces are all together. But then at the end of the day, you know, it can be something totally different. And I think that, is what's so great is this movie doesn't spoon feed you everything. They just make you feel and worry and are concerned. And then they just kind of let it happen. And some things they show you, some things they don't. And I think, I, I think that is a genius. They didn't, they didn't spoon feed you too much. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's part of why I so appreciate the film. And, and it makes you think of, makes me think of Taxi Driver and, and uh, the King of Comedy is that it doesn't, let you off the hook you have to sit in it and that discomfort is what makes it so powerful and you know you go through the whole roller coaster of of emotions and it it, it just it's really really well done and, and let, let, you know, me, I want, let me ask you this yeah you brought this up and i didn't address it before i saw a taxi driver much later in life it was probably you know four year, four or five years ago and that's one of those movies that I didn't think I would like. And the way that movie grabbed me, held me, manipulated me. And then at the end of the movie, I remember calling my friend and I was just like, he had told me for years, you got to see Taxi Driver, you're going to love it. But it was like, I'm like, I don't think I'm going to like it. And how that movie was watching somebody that was just your average Joe. Like there was nothing remarkable, different, you know, he wasn't dumb. He wasn't smart. He wasn't, you know, just whatever. And you watched the man just go off the rails. I mean, you watched him just go from what you could just in New York. Here's a street of a thousand people walking down, just pluck someone and then watch him go crazy. 
And that was the only complaint I would have about the Joker is he, he came off more as a simpleton. Maybe he had, you know, maybe he had a fetal alcohol syndrome. Maybe, you know, there's, there's stuff that you can assume, but they didn't spoon feed you that, which is fine. But he always felt in some ways damaged. You know, the betrayal that he was always, it was never going to end well for him. He was never going to have an easy life, no matter which way you cut it. And the thing I really liked about Taxi Driver was I felt like the journey was longer for the downfall. In this movie, the downfall wasn't as far down. It was just strung out and there was different, there was different uh, mitigating factors for the downfall. And I'm curious your, your take on, you know, the Arthur Flex, you know, descent into madness versus what you saw in Taxi Driver. Yeah, it's, so here's the thing about Taxi Driver. I, full disclosure, I was, uh, Jodie Foster's body double in that film. Um, so I, I'm intimately involved with it. No, I, uh, Taxi Driver is just one of the greatest films ever made. And that's why I always say when people are like, oh, it's Taxi Driver. It's not just Taxi Driver. It's Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy, yeah. which Arthur Fleck is more akin to Rupert Pupkin, the main character in The King of Comedy, than he is to Travis Bickle, who is taxi driver's protagonist so it's almost as if you take Rupert Pupkin and you put him in taxi driver and you'll get sort of because it isn't a, a, a real a mixture of those yeah. those two yeah um but I I agree the thing that that is striking about Joker and its comparison to those films is that in taxi driver in particular a main character in the film and I would say it's second billing is New York city itself. And it's this palpable presence that Travis Bickle is in a relationship with. Yeah. Um, and it's an abusive relationship both ways. It ends up being, I think that's the same with Joker. That's the similarity to me yeah. is that Joker, Arthur Fleck's relationship is to, Gotham and the world he inhabits and how um, misplaced he is in that world and how ill-equipped he is to survive it, never mind, you know, thrive in it. Um, and the other thing that is interesting about the, the connection between the two is, um, is how it's shot. So there are, there are some shots very similar to Taxi Driver. There's a very famous shot where Travis Bickle's on the phone talking and he's trying to connect with the girl and the camera slowly, slowly moves to the right and it's just looking down an empty hallway and it holds there. And they, they don't copy it shot for shot, but like there's a similar shot in Joker where you're just looking down this hallway. And, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, on Taxi Driver there, he's driving around the city and there's a camera attached to the taxi that is on the, the bumper uh, to the side. So you're seeing ha a little bit of the taxi and then the street and the sidewalk in the rest of the shot. And he drives around the city and that's interspersed throughout the film. In this movie, the same thing happens, except the camera is facing inward. And so you see Arthur uh, on the bus looking out the window. You see Arthur in the back of the police car looking out the window. So it's taking taxi driver and sort of spinning it slightly so that the perspective is skewed a little bit and altered so that 
it's even more bizarre because yeah. you're not in New York City, although it looks a lot like the New York City of you know the <laughs> '70s that, that I remember. But it, it it's very much tilted towards him and his internal experience, which is so tortured. Now, The King of Comedy is a great, great film, and I highly recommend it to people because it is so bizarre and so weird. But it the whole thing about Arthur wanting to be a stand-up comedian and stuff like that is just Rupert Pupkin up and down. Um, and again, it's, it's worth noting that Robert De Niro is in The Joker. So it, there's this connection with that as well. And Scorsese was originally one of the producers on it. He, he backed out uh, before the filming, I think. Um, so I can't remember your question, but that's, that's what I was... <laughs> the, the connection to Taxi Driver and uh, Scorsese's early work is, is very palpable. It's very obvious, even just from the look of it, the shoot of it. Um, the pace of it, you know, it, like Taxi Driver is a great example. Of just letting something sit there, and Joker does the same thing of just letting it sit there for a few beats, where it's just like, huh. Which is why I, when I wrote about Joker, I said, you know, what this film is. Yes, it's it's a, it, it's an evolution of Taxi Driver. It's like Taxi Driver two, but it's set like back in that time before you know it was it's set in the glorious 70s before hollywood was overtaken by the big budget movies and the studios started flexing their muscles and stuff so it, it's like this dual thread of meaning for joker because it's going back to that time it's showing a story in that time it's paying homage to that time and that style but it's also doing the same thing to the big budget comic book films it's this fly by the seat of your pants, even if that's possible with $60 million budget. <laughs> um, it, it's doing that just like those movies in the 70s were doing it. And it's doing it in the face of these corporate behemoths, the Disney's and the Warner Brothers and all these things. And it's saying, hey, here's an actual story using this material that is a genuine story with a great performance. And it's, it's an, uh, a director known for comedy turning into an auteur and really getting a chance to flex muscles. Whereas like you think of the Marvel movies, it doesn't matter the director they bring in there. They're, they're going to kowtow to what Disney tells them to do. Same the star Wars movies, you know, the, the Warner brothers, uh, DC stuff is, you know, a disaster area, but except for Joker. So that's why the movie, I think it's just, it, it works on all these multiple levels of, of meaning. And even in the real world of, of Hollywood, it works on that level. Um, so those are, yeah, those are just my rambling thoughts for a second there. To be a defender of DC, I would, I would argue to say that uh, Joker and Wonder Woman are their, their two successes. Yes, I would agree. Wonder <laughs> Woman's a success. No, it is. And it's funny because even, even just recently I, I went to the movies and I saw a trailer for, uh, Black Widow with your yeah. favorite actress, Scarlett Johansson in it. And it's so funny because that comes out soon, I think. Yes. And just by the trailer, you can see the impact Joker's having. They've turned the Marvel movie. It has made a decided turn to the dark side. And I don't know if the movie's going to be like that, but they're certainly marketing it that way. The music is very dark. The storyline they're sort of implying 
very, very dark. Um, so it, it's interesting to have it have that much of an effect immediately. You know, yeah. wh whether that is true in the film, I tend to doubt, but uh, it's just very interesting. And, uh, and it would be interesting to see where DC goes from here with this stuff because, you know, the Birds of Prey comes out, uh, yeah. I think, in a couple of weeks. And I, I tend to think that will be a, a very watered down version of this sort of thing but it it could be a game changer i i think it it may very well be in the long run i think this is sort of the stone to the head of the goliath of of the marvel movies this and end game ending the that sort of run of marvel i think i think will change uh cinema for the next you know decade you know what, or so you know it changes cinema faster than anything else Money, huge profit margins. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that is the story that Hollywood is listening to. Not about the creative, not about how to make the movie, not to get talented people. It's how do we make those profit margins that they made on Joker? So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to talk real quick about just the the flesh and bone of the narrative of Joker. Um, I've written about this before, but you know, people may have not read it. Uh, you know, which I wouldn't blame them for. Um, but I, I'm fascinated by the idea, and I, I wonder what you think about this. I'll lay it out first, and then you can comment. Is part of why people resonate, why this story resonates with people and people connect with it, is that the archetype on display is, you know, the Joker is an archetype in and of itself, right? The, yeah. the trickster. And we've seen that. We see that play out in real life, which is, you know, and, and not to get all political, but that's part of the appeal of Donald Trump is that he's this trickster who is sort of upturning the apple cart of, of things. And people appreciate that sometimes in, in certain stages. But this Joker, Arthur Fleck, is actually not a trickster. No. Which is really interesting because Heath Ledger's Joker is the trickster archetype. Yes. He's, and, and he's very smart, right? And he's very manipulative, and he's, he has all these things planned out, and it's, everything's a trick, um, which is great. Ledger's performance is, is just ridiculously good. What this character is, Arthur Fleck, is he is the Christ archetype. He's Jesus archetype. Fleck is the Jesus archetype. And you see that right away in the film, in that you know he's beaten on the street by this group of people. He's mistreated by people. He's misunderstood. He uh, it laughs inappropriately, like he, he's sort of walking the, the secret path. He's connected to something that people don't understand, so he's ridiculed for it. And he is literally kicked and beaten and spat upon, uh, much like Jesus was in his life. And then he becomes the Christ. Through crucifixion, he becomes the Christ, this eternal figure, this, this indomitable figure, right, which is... Many stories are like this way that, you know, whether it's Thelma and Louise, you know, them driving off the cliff, yep. they're not dying, they're becoming immortal. Um, what's fascinating to me, and I think this is so well done, and again, this happens throughout uh, the story, but there's one point, one turning point, which sums it up. So Arthur uh, shoots people in a movie, in a television studio, and it's, he sort of becomes this figure and then there's riding in the streets and everybody's sort of the joker and we're the joker and this and that and he's in the back of the police car very 
looking out the window as he does and the car gets hit by an ambulance and uh, goes flying and then the crowd gathers around him and they reach into the police car and they pull him his body out it's this group everybody's wearing joker masks and they pull him out and it's they're taking christ's body out of the tomb and they are holding him it's like a pieta it's it's like they're holding him like that he's totally limp and they put him on the hood of this car and he slowly comes to and he realizes what's going on around him a little bit he's totally out of it he's he's psychotic anyway and he gets up and he starts looking around and everybody's cheering the place is going nuts and he sticks his arms out in the cross pose and he twirls around is beautifully shot there's fire lighting everything and he takes the blood and he paints a smile on his face and he just went from being arthur fleck to being the joker and he went from being the man jesus to being the christ god except in this case he's the antichrist and that's been implied throughout the movie as i talked earlier when he does that dance after his first kill he ends up in the mirror with his arms outstretched in a Jesus Christ pose. Uh, Soundgarden song. Great song, by the way. Um, that's, that's the archetype that we connect to, even though we're not conscious of it. And I think Phillips is very conscious of it because he paints it. If you look for it, he paints it very clearly throughout. And I think it's that combination of the Joker, uh, this, this sort of devilish character combined with the narrative archetype of Jesus to the Christ, that evolution, except it turns bad, obviously, um, into the Antichrist. I think that's why people connect to it and they're not even aware of why that is. They just think, oh, this is interesting. But like, that's the archetype driving the story. Your yeah. thoughts, Barry? No, I mean, I think- You have, you have 30 seconds, go. Okay. Um, I'd like to thank my mom. <laughs> uh, I, the, the ending for me, I think you and I talked about it uh, right after we saw it because some of the parts I didn't like about the movie is when they kind of forced in the, the young Bruce Wayne stuff. But we talked, I agree. it was an interesting standpoint that the Arthur Fleck slash Joker, his age doesn't match up with Batman. And so one of the things that I love is kind of you as you start kind of you know analyzing all this going through the stuff in the movie that you were thinking about and that resonated and the questions that were there and if this isn't the joker of the batman what joker is this and i love the idea that this is the joker because he wasn't the trickster wasn't kind of what we know that this is what inspires the character of the joker which can constantly reinvent who the Joker is in any circumstance, in any franchise. And I'm like, that's really brilliant. Because they, yeah. didn't, they, they, they were able to still play in the world, but leave it open enough where Heath Ledger's can still live. You know, Jack Nicholson's can still live. It, it, it doesn't lock you into anything, but yet it is the origin story without being like, well, but now, you know, we, uh, we solved that problem. It, it alleviates the problem, but doesn't run away from it. I, I think that is a true testament to what they tried to pull together. And I'm, I'm really happy that I think they pulled it off well. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and I agree about the, the Bruce Wayne parts, I think are the weakest parts of the, of the picture. But um, 
the idea that like you can watch this film and this performance and, and the world that it's set in and all these things. And then you could go to uh, the Dark Knight series and that still works. 100%. Like, doesn't, like, doesn't diminish it at all. Like it's Keith Ledger, Ledger's Joker shows up out of nowhere. Yep. He's, he just is this thing that shows up and he, he lies about his origin story. Right. So like, well, I also love is when it, the opening, the brilliant opening scene of the dark Knight when they're like, he got, you know, they, he, they refer to it as the Joker. It's like they, the, the, the criminals have forgotten the Joker origin story. It's almost like yeah. that happened so long ago. Nobody remembers, but right. you know, Heath Ledger knew and he's like, Oh, I know what I can do with this. And it, it, it almost makes that character even more sinisterly genius. Yes. And it, it, it took something that was great and made it greater which I think that's, that, that gives me goosebumps thinking about it. I agree. And it's so interesting you, you talk about that. I mean, the opening scene of, uh, of uh, The Dark Knight is so great. With, and all the bad guys, of course, are wearing clown masks, yep. including the Joker. And it's so great that like, this movie is, is a standalone film, and it could probably spawn you know, many sort of uh, bastard children of it. And yet it's also, it fits into the canon of, the the Nolan movies like to be able to have that happen and have it be real and it, it, it's it's just a wild wild uh, success to be able to to thread that needle to hit the bullseye of like oh wow this works across many spectrums and, and like uh, you know Phoenix's performance does not negate Ledger's in fact no. it enhances it you yep. know it, it it makes it all the more powerful and and unique and potent and stuff so i i just I, I just love that part i wanted to talk briefly if we could about the reaction to the film um because i've had recently i never read reviews um before i see a film and i honestly don't even read them after i see a film i write my review and then occasionally people will send me stuff oh, oh i saw this and that um and I never listen to podcasts, but I have started since we've started our podcast. I'm like, oh, I, I, sh I guess I should listen to a podcast <laughs> to see how it goes. So I've listened to a few podcasts and it's interesting. I've heard really negative things about Joker from a bunch of people. Um, and it's specifically what these people say and who they are that strikes me about it. So I listened to... Uh, just this week, I listened to, after we did our Parasite podcast, I listened to a podcast from Film Comment Magazine, which is this very high-end uh, film cinephile magazine. And they had a, a podcast uh, from last October. And so I listened to it. And it was about Parasite. I was like, oh, this, this is interesting. Um, but in the podcast, they talked about Joker, which had just come out at that point. And they all hated it. And they weren't even reviewing it. They were just like talking, but they were just saying, oh, I'm not even going to mention that movie. Like they hated it so much they wouldn't mention it. But one of the editors of Film Comment is this woman, Amy Taubin. And she said, and just the dismissive, uh, the vitriol in her voice, it was really amazing. She just like, she goes, oh, so stupid. He is so stupid. And she's talking about Todd Phillips. And I was just, I was taken aback by it because I felt like, first of all, 
this is like film comment. This is, this is not like two jackasses like me and you, <laughs> like just getting together and, and talking, you know, and then to just talk like that, I just was like, wow, that's a very personal attack on Todd Phillips for a movie that he made, not for something he did, yeah. but like for, for this film that it's, and they just hated it with a passion. And then this other person is Amanda Dobbins from uh, The Ringer. And she hates Joker. And she just kept saying, anybody who likes it is dumb. It's a dumb movie. And if you think it's good, you're dumb. And I was just really taken aback by that because I thought, that's not an argument against the film. And no argument is laid out. The only thing people say is like, oh, it's not about anything. What's it about? Is it about you know, uh, white male rage? Is it about, you know, socioeconomic things? Is it about this? Is it is about that. And I, and I've watched the film. I've seen it three times, as I said. And what strikes me about it is that it's about all of those things. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not one of them. And I know maybe it's because I am a white male and I'm very comfortable with rage. Um, I walk out on the street and I think like, I can't walk around my block, and this is not a terrible neighborhood, by the way. I can't walk around my block and walk on the sidewalk because there's people living on the sidewalk. So like me and my son have to walk in the street to go around. And that's all over the place out here. And people are in despair. People die of drug overdoses and, and diseases of despair. So alcoholism, suicides, things like that. At alarming rates, much higher, white men in particular, much higher than like 20 years ago. And this movie, in its way, gives a voice to that despair. Arthur is constantly in despair. He has been left behind and forgotten, and he's got no shot. And he is in despair. And the idea that this movie is about nothing, I think, speaks more to its critics than it does to the film, especially when those critics don't make an argument about, oh, well, it's shot poorly. Phoenix is not very good. I didn't, you know, the arc of the story isn't very good. It doesn't hit the beats it needs to hit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it feels so personal to the people who hate the movie that it makes me think it's more about them. You know, so like, perfect example. So Ms. Taubin, Ms. Dobbins, Ty Burr, Anthony Lane, David Edelstein, all these people, they do have something in common. And that something is, is that they live in very elite enclaves and work at very elite places. And they are not, how shall we say, traditionally masculine and have no sort of connection to that idea. So if I were to meet Ty Burr or Anthony Lane or David Edelstein or something like that, they would have no idea what to do with somebody like me because they would be like, wait, what about my delicate sensibilities? And I'd be like, no, that's not what life is like. Life in the real world is this cat, right? This cat who's getting in your face and being like, hey, welcome to the jungle. And there seems to be such a disconnect and a discomfort with masculinity. And the idea of toxic masculinity is now synonymous with masculinity. And it's just not. They're two different things. And Arthur Fleck is not even toxic masculinity. He is hardly masculine right he is emasculated that's the problem and so that's I, i'm fascinated by this and i'm fascinated by your thoughts on it because it, it really strikes me as 
as a huge problem among film critics and, and cultural critics who just do not grasp what life is like in this real world that we inhabit. Well, I, I we'll have to have a different podcast for how de deep we can go with the disconnect of most people from what life is like for most people. I mean, there's never been a more, for people who kind of are in traditional outlets of media or that have successful podcasts or whatnot, most of them don't come from kind of the, the, the working class of what constitutes a, a large portion of society. I think you're right in many aspects. I think, a, I think what's funny to me is, is I've struggled with movies, I've struggled with talking about this, that a lot of movies, people seem to like gray area movies where there's not really black and white, you know, the character isn't all good, isn't all bad. There's no, you know, there's no sense of justice. It could be like real life where it's messy. Hear the word messy all the time. But yet, if you make a movie that's a little bit more black and white, where the 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 bad side wins and there isn't a good side to counteract it, there I think is a a rooted thing inside of humankind that we don't like that. That scares people more than anything. And I'm okay because I'm going to see the Joker. I know in my head. I know the Joker story is not going to be a good one. It's not going to come out well where, oh, the Joker's now realized his wrongs and he's growing as a human <laughs> in the way that you know, society would like him to. But I also know that the Joker exists in a world where there is a Batman, where there is something that's going to at least try to, you know, it would be like, it would be like a movie if you did like Hitler's origin story. You know, people don't know, well, yeah, well, then World War II happened and we, we stopped him. You know, I think that in this this Joker world, I think people don't like to entertain the idea that we want to potentially glorify. And I don't understand where the glorification comes from because that, to me, nothing about Arthur Fleck or the Joker seemed fun or exciting or like, yeah, that's the life I want to change to. Right. I think because you put a spotlight on it, that now equates with glorifying. And I think there's an unsettling because I think we have enough with whether it be like, you know, the promotion of, you know, school shootings or these kind of almost, almost comic book type, you know, evil doers that kind of come up out of nowhere that you can't stop and you can't predict and you can't do stuff with that. I think because we don't know how to deal with them, people just want them to go away. And I think that's why a lot of people, when they see something like the Joker, they're just like, no, I'm no. And they just kind of put up a giant barrier and there's just no discussion to be had there. And, you know, I think it's partly we don't like to look at the hard parts about life or the uncomfortable realities that exist there. And I think, I think that might be some of the off-putting that people, you know, kind of want to just say no to the Joker. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that about, like, by showing it, we're sort of uh, glorifying it, that idea. And that feeds into the whole whole notion of like a cancel culture where like oh you can't uh have somebody with some you know controversial opinion on your podcast or whatever like joe rogan gets all sorts of crap for oh you're giving a platform to these these people whatever white nationalists or something um which it, that just seems to be the the mode we're in nowadays and i just think that's so self-defeating that the power of these ideas are in their mystery. And when spotlight is shown upon them, 
they, you know, well, it's the best disinfectant, right? It's what we talked about with the Jojo Rabbit episode, that ideas travel from generation to generation, from culture to culture, from ethnic group to ethnic group, that you don't want, when you shut it all out and you never express it and you never look at it and you never deal with the uncomfortable, that's when real jokers arise kind of out of left field and do bad things. And I think I don't ever want to get to the point where we just don't ever deal. We just put stuff in a box. And I think not that, you know, the Joker's trying to solve the world's problems. Don't, don't get my, my speech now equated with that. But I do think that it, it is dangerous when people aren't willing to confront things that are not necessarily typically easy. Yeah. And that, that's what art is for. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it is literally the place where we can, uh, investigate and, and get in the muck and mire of these, these issues and these feelings and these thoughts in a safe environment, right? That is contained yeah. on a screen in front of us or a photograph or in music or whatever. Like, that's the way to do that. And it's a cathartic experience so that we can all express whatever feelings of anxiety or disappointment or anger or rage that we have. We get to express that through the film that we're watching. That's the purpose of art. That's the purpose of cinema. Yeah is for that experience you know and another thing that really struck me about this and and i've had uh a bunch of readers actually reach out to me and talk about this is there was a palpable sense of disappointment in the media after there weren't shootings yes following joker's premiere and i just i was like what is going on that there was just this delicious anticipation of like oh Number one, we're going to be right. Number two, oh, this is great for ratings because we'll get to cover this for three weeks about like, oh, joke of this and all, you know, all the hot takes and all that stuff, which, you know, I'm as guilty as anybody. I mean, I make most of my living doing that. But like, it just struck me as so revealing of where we are sort of as a culture. And I think that's, again, part of the, <laughs> the beauty and the intrigue and the mastery of, of Joker is that it reveals all those things about everything it touches. Yeah. And so whether it be critical opinion or the cultural reaction to it or, you know, audience reaction or anything like that, the individual, it does all those things. And it says things about everyone and everything it goes near. And very, very few films do that. Yeah. I mean, very few. Right. And I think that is a testament and a monument to the power of this movie, which I, I cannot say enough how much I love this movie. And I have a copy of it, so I might even watch it again tonight because <laughs> I'm an important person. So I have screeners, man. I'm very important. Well, it'll, um, be, it'll be curious to see if the, if the Academy votes for it. Uh, I don't think it would win Best Picture, but it, it'll be one of those ones that will, will, will stick around. It, it's, definitely a, it's definitely one that will, will not be forgotten. I agree. I agree. Uh, any closing thoughts on Joker? See it. <laughs> yes, yeah. gird your loins and go see it. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. Uh, so I guess we have nothing to say about Joker again. Uh, we both enjoyed it. Both encourage you to see it. And we want to thank you for tuning in to Looking California, Field, Minnesota. Again, my name is Michael McCaffrey, and this is my partner. Barry Anderson, and we will see you next week. See you next week.